movie time and we are back again hey everyone hope that you had a fabulous week with us and tonight we are going to have an amazing amazing show and of course we uh, we have my co-host kente hey kente how you doing i'm doing excellent i'm so happy to be here tonight uh you know it's a beautiful day as always in los angeles and I have a lot going on, and I'm I'm just really excited. And you know, we have, like you said, we have a, a great guest, and uh, I'm ready to go. And there's a call-in number for all of our, our guests and uh, for all of our listeners and stuff to jump in with us. Yes, yes. And if you want to participate in the action tonight, you can do so by, of course, you can go to our website, and that's indyradio.org. That's i n d y radio.org, or you can call in. And that number is 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is 323-522-4601. Absolutely. And tonight we have our most incredible guest, Mr. Alan Brown. Hey, Alan, how you doing? I'm good. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. National Chocolate Day. So did you have your chocolates? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I stay away from the stuff. <laughs> it's too addicting for me. Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I swear that it's like, uh, you know, one of these days I'm just going to, like, attach it to me. <laughs> It'll yeah, just be no, faster. It, actually, uh, no, I, I, I agree with you. So, no, I haven't had my chocolate today, but. <clears throat> what about you, Kitty? Uh, you know what? I haven't had no chocolate today either. Uh, not at all. And you know what? I can't, I gotta celebrate because today is, you know, National Chocolate Day. So, you know. <laughs> Wow, big day. I, well, I'm honored to be here on National Chocolate Day. So, uh, <laughs> well, just because we, the interview uh, will be that much sweeter. <laughs> I guess you could say it's a sweet evening. <laughs> All right. You know, uh, without the wrapping. Yeah. And uh, so, Alan, uh, so tell me a little bit about your background so that the audience can hear all about how we got to here. Okay, uh, years ago I started with uh, uh, started as a production assistant at PVC Studios, which was a small production post production facility in New York City. And then I think I was there about three years, and then I joined Osprey Productions. I was asked to join, and Osprey Productions uh, owner was a fellow by the name of Craig Fisher, who happened to be the president of the Writers Guild of America at the time, and uh, the prior producer of the Today Show, and uh, started with uh, Craig really as a story editor and, and worked with him in production. By the time I left, I had uh, done some directing for Craig and worked primarily as a story editor. And I ch attained the position of you know, senior VP of productions by that point. And then I went to work for Joseph E. Levine Presents. And they, at that time, they were probably the most, one of the most prestigious movie companies in the business. I mean, they produced... For any of the dinosaurs out there, they produced uh, The Graduate, A Lion and Winter with Kate Hepburn. Uh, their original producers was Zero Mustel, uh, and uh, approximately 500 films. And uh, it was it was a wonderful experience working there. I got to meet a lot of wonderful, wonderful people. And through Joe, I met who became my future partner, and uh, Phil Kellogg. Uh, and he was my executive producer with me for Year of the Comet. And uh, Phil and I became partners after David Lean passed away, and he had been David's partner prior. And uh, Phil also had 
uh, he was uh, ran William Morris Motion Picture Division for uh, many, many years prior to leaving and joining David Lean, and then ultimately with me. And so I, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Hollywood's changed a lot today. It's not it's not the same business. It's not the same industry. And uh, I think I think they're for the creatives listening, I think it's an exciting, wonderful time uh, because you're not limited just to the old studios for distribution of films. There, are, uh, There's a plethora of new distribution outlets emerging. And, uh, you know, you've seen the development of everything from Amazon to Barnes & Noble to Netflix to, you know, where uh, just the, if someone's really, really has a good story to tell, there are more ways now to get it made into a, a film. Uh, you know, it might not be the kind of money going in, but uh, I think the opportunities are greater today than they've ever been. We've also know a lot of ways come full circle, though, with our financing and stuff like that for film, because now with lower budget films being uh, so superly popular, it's like you're either a lower budget or you're a tentpole. It's like a lot of times the in-between category is not happening as much any longer. It, it's, it's not happening. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, and that goes to how they assess risk. If you, if you put out a good product and it's a low budget, you're guaranteed to get your money back uh, as an investor. If you have a tentpole film, you're guaranteed to get your money back. The in-between range is the danger range, you know. And uh, so you see a lot of studios are just focusing on the tentpole film and uh, the tentpole films and and more of your independence. Now you're in Toronto, and the yep. the tax credit situation in Toronto is has stimulated a lot of the independent films. And it's actually, uh, the United States, I know New York is doing, you know, has tax credits now, Louisiana, and a lot of the different states, but they're not as well established as uh, Toronto. So uh, I think I think that the real upside in this is that once a distribution, let's put it this way, you can get global distribution now for any film if it's done properly. And if the film's really, really good, uh, so, and it's the same in publishing where you're not limited to, uh, you know, the, the legacy publishers anymore. Uh, and, you know, even though I didn't like the book, Fifty Shades of Grey is a prime example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, where they've made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so, and I, I, you're starting to see the same thing emerge in films. We just, we haven't had a real breakout film. Well, that's not true. Some of the urban films. Uh, what's the film that was uh, the religious film? I can't think of the title. So War Room. Just made, War Room. Right. For $3, for $3 million, I think it's uh -huh. what, $70 million in box office. I think it was primarily distributed through the Christian churches. So there's a, there's a prime example of uh, outside the box. And there, there's a lot more opportunity today. So I hope I answered your question. Absolutely, it's like in, so. Also, you moved for, uh, from film also into uh, dealing with writing uh, with writers, and you have MES. How did MES come to be? MES uh, <laughs> because when uh, the, I had been putting deals together for film financing, and when the crash came in two thousand six, two thousand seven, and the market froze up, uh, I had an opportunity to decide. Uh, you know, I. 
money just wasn't moving and and film tends to be film finance tends to be the last stock in the wash line so to speak so uh, I knew that I either had to do something uh, you know either retire change careers or go back to what I loved and I, I sat back and I analyzed my career and said what was I best at over my career and uh, story editing uh, I came to the conclusion of the story editing, so I just went for it, and it's what I really love, what I have a passion for. And uh, that's how uh, Manuscript Editing Solutions came to being, and it, you know, uh, knock on wood, but it's been very, very successful. I'm very happy. Uh, and I've, I've been helping a lot of, I'd say, right now, my first-time authors uh, publishing contracts, I think probably 80% of my first-time authors who receive publishing contracts. And, so you're... Uh, Mm-hmm. So, go ahead, yes. I was going to ask, so you uh, so you enjoy working with new and up-and-coming writers? Yes, yes, I do. And I had, uh, it's interesting because the media blitz for uh, Shrey Ram Koo's book, uh, who, you know, mm-hmm. her story was interesting. And as a client, I mean, the Washington Post picked up the story. Uh, USA Today, Huffington Post did four articles on it. Uh, the Today Show, I think she's scheduled uh, to uh, be interviewed by them, uh, the London Examiner. And so, uh, you know, and her story is, one, she brought it to me to edit. I mean, she's highly educated, uh, graduate of Yale Medical School. But when I read it, the story was so compelling. It was really uh, uh, a story of today where, uh, you know, as a young child, she was blown up in a killing field in Cambodia, and she was saved by a doctor, and her family's life was saved, and she came to Oregon and literally, as a child, worked in the fields picking fruit, and and you know, today as a leading surgeon. It's just a, a wonderful story filled with hope. So I enjoy, I enjoy all sorts of stories. I think, you know, uh, and I also like working with uh, A-list writers. I, you know, I enjoy my friendships with, you know, Gay Talese and Nick Blodgy and and uh, a lot of different writers, but uh, when someone's doing it, when someone's writing straight from their soul, and they're not familiar with the industry, and they're just uh, unbridled enthusiasm, there's a real joy to that, uh, because that's what brought me into the industry in the beginning. I love stories. I love storytelling. And, uh, you know, in uh, most of the time, I love my writers. <laughs> and do you find that also, it's like, so tell me what the ultimate client would look like for you, because in terms of, also in terms of a lot of people who it's like, when they want to bring in their their works, whether it be uh, film work, uh, whether it be a screenplay, book, it's like, uh, it's like what does the ultimate client look like to you? Uh, it's, uh, I have no, just that they're authentically themselves. Uh, that's all, because the best writing that I've ever seen is where someone uh, takes their soul and spreads it all over a page. Uh, so I have no, you know, the one thing is that uh, I, I, I work never to change a writer's voice. Uh, so anything I say to a writer is a suggestion uh, on, on any issue. So, uh, and I, I edit differently than most. I read, I read the actual book out loud to the writer. Uh, so that they can see uh, their own mistakes more clearly, or I shouldn't say that, but the shortcomings. 
And so I always try with my writers to move for uh, clarity of thought will always create an accuracy of response in the reader. So uh, I try to help my writer uh, find the clarity in their work. So uh, in terms uh, of that, it's like uh, when people are, uh, are presenting to you, for example, with the manuscripts, it's like how would you want them to present it to you? It, 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 I don't care how they present it. They uh, email it to me, uh, and then what I generally do is I give them a bid. I have clients from all over the world. Uh, from <laughs> I think I've had clients from uh, Romania. Sometimes English is a second language. It gets a little tricky. Uh, write, uh, writers that are writing in English, and it's not their native language, uh, gets a little tricky. But I find that a lot of fun. You know, because in German, if you translate it directly... Uh, you know, throw the hay over the fence to the cow, you'd say throw the cow over the fence some hay. Uh, yeah. So, so working with foreign writers in English, uh, I run across examples like that, which keeps my mind clear and it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and also clarity of thought, what are, what are they really trying to say? And then with my uh, American writers and, or English-speaking writers, there, there, there are nuances that, you know, flipping a phrase in a sentence or, uh, uh, you know, creating different tempo. Uh, what creates action in dialogue? How, how do you do, how do you create action? Well, uh, if there's action going on and there's dialogue going on at all, it's always short and crisp. So if I look at some of the, the newbies in the business, the dialogue will be too long. Uh, it won't be realistic, and their action scenes will have long sentences. And in truth, the best action uh, to incre increase intensity and shorten the sentences. And writing's changed over the years, where it's like a, the audience has different uh, demands, or do you find that it's like there? Uh, what exactly are some of the elements that have changed over the period of time? Well, you had the you had a classical. Uh, let's see. Uh, like Citizen Kane was a classical uh, film uh, and storyline. You had a you had a real clear beginning, middle, and an end, and uh, you know that tied around uh, you know the main character's happiness, and that's why Rosebud, that sentimentality of Rosebud, uh, was so important. Today, you see a more what's I think termed a postmodern style of writing where you'll see three different stories converge at plot points. Uh, and you see it in television, you see it in film, where you have uh, three different stories running uh, parallel to each other, and, and they converge on plot points. And generally you can tell it's when all the, all the actors show up on the, in the same uh, scene. Uh, and then, you know, building to a climax. I like it because it's more complicated. It's much faster paced because you're, you're compressing a lot more action into it. And so you see that more and more. And actually, even in the, some great comedies, I think, couplings out of uh, uh, the U.K. with a brilliant uh, you know, use of the postmodern technique and humor. So those are the kind of changes, but no one's really cracked in film using the omniscient point of view. I think Ben Franklin said... Uh, when from the novelette that when they found the omniscient point of view, that it would change uh, writing forever, and it did. 
And we still haven't really cracked it comfortably in film. You know, you'll see voiceovers to get someone's thought. But we still have pretty much the four character structure of the protagonist, the antagonist, the shadow, and then the romance angle. And the shadow plays uh, really the role of getting the inner motivation of the protagonist. But someone out there will break the code and, and, and film will be changed forever. Well, yeah, it's like we are also becoming a, a shorter expansion in terms of society, of in terms of attention as well. So getting to the actual meat of the story is starting to become a more crucial uh, point in the writing. It's, I, it's well, like I, where before you could take a longer time to language into the story. It, it's true. You know, it's interesting, though. I said it uh, years ago. I said it a... Uh, uh, Low Country Writers Conference, where all the leading uh, intelligentsia of the, uh, you know, both the publishing and the writing industry uh, were meeting. And it was interesting, I, sitting on the veranda in Beaufort, South Carolina, uh, debating who the best American writer was. And everyone at that, at that sitting truly believed that Charlie Smith was heir apparent to William Falk. And Charlie hasn't had the recognition. I mean, the New York Times, and he's a dear friend of mine, the New York Times has given him a lot of recognition, uh, but and a lot of the, the reviews, but he's, he hasn't spread into the mainstream. I know there, there, he's lecturing, or he was lecturing at you know, the Ivy League circuit, but uh, if, 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 if someone wants to see great classical writing, uh, Charlie Smith, and probably my recommendation would be Shinehawk uh, for real, real, uh, what I would consider Americana literature. And also in, the, the, in the classic sense. In that sense, also, does he uh, do a lot of social media in terms of getting the product out there? Because a lot of people are now using social media also to get their screenplays, publish, uh, their novels and publishing out there in terms of, uh, of that. Yeah, no, Charlie, I think it's probably still with all the legacy publishers, but, uh, and I don't think he uses social media, but for anyone in the viewing audience, I mean, listening audience would like to read, uh, some, what I perceive, you know, what I consider really great literature, uh, read Charlie Smith's work. Uh, there are a lot of great authors out there that, you know, uh, deal with plot and structure, uh, but Charlie, uh, in my opinion, his writings like poetry. I mean, it just, it just, it's, it's just unbelievable. So uh, gifted and it's straight from the soul. So, and that's what I've noticed. Right? When I worked with Pat Conroy uh, on beach music, uh, the great writers, there are no blocks between the soul, and it's almost like they can, they're, they have the ability to spread their soul over a page. And page by page. And I remember asking uh, Charlie because at the time I was uh, working pretty much in Hollywood and, and uh, Charlie's topics are very, very dark. And I asked him, I said, Charlie, could you write a book that wasn't so dark? And he said, Alan, I don't tell, uh, I don't write, I don't tell my characters what to do, they tell me. And so that's, another trait, that's another trait I've noticed in great writers that the there, become, there, there comes a point in the story where mm-hmm. the characters are telling them what to write. They're just more, almost not automatic writing, but they're listening to their characters tell them. And I've noticed that from all the A-list writers that I've talked to, 
that has been probably the most uh, uniform and unique response from my from my perspective. Definitely, because like, in terms of great writing, whether it be screenplay or novel, it's like a, the voice of the character has to be predominant in the whole storyline itself, as well as also to understand uh, it's like, yeah, sometimes the character will just take over the writing. And that's, that's just from years and years of, from, and that can go from everyone from, you know, uh, you know, gay to Nick. Uh, to Baji, to uh, Pat Conroy, uh, you know, to Charlie Smith. Uh, that's the one trait. And, 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 you know, the people I just mentioned, their personalities are extremely different. But that's the one thing where you know, one, one thing they have in common. And, uh, also in tr- What's that? I'm sorry. Hello. Uh, hi. I was saying, over with plots and stories, how do you find that they are diversifying over the years? Because it's like, again, we're also being able to cross genres, have richer plotting uh, lines as well. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't hear the question. I apologize. Oh, I was um, asking, how do you feel that uh, that the industry has morphed with the idea of writing in diff- in terms of being able to cross over genres, have different things morphing, as well as also a, a lot more freedom to of uh, expression, because we also have so much more visually we can be able to put forward to it. Yeah, there, there have been actually the, the industry right now. Uh, the publishing industry ten years ago, when uh, everything went to digital, uh, the legacy publishers were terrified and fearful that it was the end of, of their reign, so to speak. But what's what's really happened now for books that, uh, and I think uh, you know, one of my writers uh, published, uh, you know, self-published and did it the right way, and he's had a bestseller and he's making more money than he would have ever made uh, with a publisher. Uh, so you have that, and he's getting a lot of activity and interest from computer game manufacturers and developers and Hollywood. And uh, the scenario today is for a tentpole film is to make sure that you can have a game come out of it and, um, and also a feature film and a plethora of books that you can cross all mediums. Uh, I'm still a purist. I think if you have a great story, uh, great stories will, they're like corks in a, uh, like a cork in a bottle of water. Any way you turn the bottle, it'll rise to the top. Uh, so I don't, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who have been very successful uh, building uh, a story that would end, lend itself to become a computer game, a feature film, and a book. And, uh, but I, I think that probably one should follow one's own heart in writing. And Absolutely. I'm just, just strictly talking about fiction. So. Yeah, it's like uh, most definitely, it's like you want to have the following one's own heart, but also it's like yeah, for a while there, you were saying that you also did in terms of also consulting as well with the regards to distribution, finance, directors, talent. It's like when somebody is coming to you also with the screenplay. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, what are some of the best guidelines that you can help them to understanding 
then okay, something uh, else make it more viable. <laughs> okay, have interesting characters. Uh, have a global story uh, that'll appeal globally. Uh, interesting characters. Uh, and then if it's a screenplay and a novel, uh, you know, the screenplay, the, the theaters, have a, they like to keep things under two hours, which means you're limited to about 115, 116 pages for a screenplay. Uh, and if you do have a, a, a manuscript, a novel, and a screenplay, uh, your chances are much better of getting it made because they leverage off. They know that the statistically that for every uh, four book buyers, there's one moviegoer. So you can start to you can start to quantify. Uh, if, like if a book uh, is selling, you know X Y Z. Uh, uh, volumes or copies or downloads, they can pretty much now quantify how many people will show up at a, uh, a movie theater to watch it. Uh, so they know what kind of, uh, you know, how much they can put behind it to turn it in, you know, have a, a film, you know, to make a film and to release it. And uh, so it always helps to have uh, a manuscript and a screenplay. Uh, the problems, the probably the most difficult problem is if you have a story in a novel that covers over 20 years, but you then run into compression problems in the screenplay. Um, you know, and Pat Conroy in Prince of Tides uh, wrote the screenplay for Prince of Tides for Barbara Streisand, but I had a, a conversation years ago with Sidney Pollack, who was offered the rights to Prince of Tides first, and he said he turned it down because uh, the compression problems of compressing 20 years into... Uh, two hours terrified him. And he said to me, he said, that's when I knew that Pat Conroy was a genius. Uh, when I watched what he did with that screenplay. Uh, because it was a brilliant job. And so, you know, if I had... <laughs> Casey Silver, president of Universal, one time said to me, he said, the perfect screenplay, he said, I'd love to have an animal as a lead, a dog as a lead, and this was right after Benji had that success. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you know they could and the time could lend itself into a video game, and uh, they would spend no money in talent, but the code was also on Adam, uh, which cracked me up. I, he was being humorous, but there was some degree because you know the stars get more money today. But it's the same with you know uh, uh, I, I forget what uh, the the book rights uh, the advances paid to. Angelina Jolie, but I think it was 45 million pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's about $60 million for her story. And that was nonfiction that uh, a London publisher gave her. So the, the numbers are bigger now for the top tier than they've ever been. They're smaller for the medium tier writers and lower writers. But as I say, I have one client that's self-publishing, I don't want to mention his name, but I venture to say his net income probably from his book sales, he's been number one for most of his books, probably somewhere in the realm of 90000 a month, is what I suspect. And a lot of people are adapting uh, novels into screenplays, uh, comic books into screenplays as well. It's like, uh, mm -hmm. what do you think, uh, how do you feel about that trend that's happening, the adaptation? Uh, you know what? I believe in the marketplace. I, I think that, you know, uh, you know, in truth, Joe Levine used to say, like, uh, 
he used to say, I never knew where I went right, but I always knew where I went wrong. Mm-hmm. And one time a reporter interviewed Joe, and, you know, he had, was successful, 500 films, and actually the Levine organization at the time had more money than uh, the studios. Uh, and he he had a lot of very quirky... Uh, someone asked him a question, they said, Joe, uh, what do you attribute to your longevity in the, in the film business? He said, I just haven't figured out who I have to screw to get out of it. Now, <laughs> he, he... I mean... He had a great sense of humor, but he, he would look at us when we started taking our job to, seriously. He'd say, forget it, guys. This is entertainment. We're here to entertain people. And, and books, you know, the fiction side of it, and uh, film, we're here to entertain people. And I think that, you know, every generation's different uh, and with different tastes. And it's a much faster-moving world. I mean, when I first had, when I first came to the film business, we were mystified when the first fax machine came in. All of a sudden, from New York, with our attorneys in Los Angeles, we didn't have to wait three to four days to get it through, you know, airmail. Uh, the contract, this little machine made all these weird noises, and the contract came through. And, you know, then from the satellite phone to, you know, the cell phone and the iPhone. And, and today, really, I have clients that... I have clients uh-huh. that from all over the world that contact me and that I edit their work and work with them or consult to them from, you know, remote regions. I had uh, one uh, Greek monk who was on top of Mount Athos in, in Greece. Uh, there was a client all the way to Romania, to Indonesia, uh, all over the world. And it's, it's an amazing, amazing, uh, it's an amazing world. There's a, uh, the world's homogenizing, in in a sense, and uh, taste change. And and I in my one of my blogs, they calculate that the IQ of the average individual has gone up to thirty points in the last hundred years. That's astounding. But I think it's because of uh, uh, the sensory perception overload that you know my grandchildren and my children were subjected to. It's a different world. I mean, don't get me wrong. I. Uh, when I want to laugh, I'll still put on the producers, mm-hmm. the original one with Zero Mustel. And, and it's when I was at the Levine organization, because Joe had produced that, when we had really bad days that Friday afternoon, uh, Levine would say, let's go down to the, uh, you know, the screen room. And he'd put on the producers. And uh, to me, the, the wonderful, farcical, comedy it was just just brilliant and it was mel brooks first work i think so you know i don't know how we got on this topic and i've probably meandered off into the past but uh, if you'd like to bring me back to reality I'd... <laughs> oh no this is actually good because it's like it does also lead into the when working with writers of, uh, of different genres and international uh, as well like from different countries um how do you find that writing styles vary and how much uh, do you find them similar um, no, everyone, everyone's writing style has, uh, their own, uh, uh, imprint, their, their, you know, their own sort of style of, uh, uh, writing. So, and everyone's thoughts, maybe there, there are commonalities, but everyone's thoughts are different and the way they express them are different. And the, the real trick to an editor is not to change the writer but to help them find their voice. Uh, 
uh, you know, if, if someone's, I haven't had anyone that, that is adept at the Urban Dictionary ask me to edit their work, and I think I probably have problems with that. But foreign languages so far, no, because most of the errors they make are in, in structure. Uh, so it's just finding in the sentence, you know, what did they mean? And then uh, putting it in more of a proper, uh, you know, just a, uh, an um, easier to understand style. Though, if it's, if they're, uh, you know, uh, simple writing, you know, subject, verb, object, uh, is in now a simpler style, but, uh, you know, there's certain writers like, and that's why Charlie Smith would be interesting for anyone out, you know, for the people out there listening, because this writing is very, very complex in today's world. And he just meanders through it, uh, to these sudden, uh, uh, you know, climaxes of, uh, intensity. And it's just, it's descriptive, it's rich, it's poetic. So, but the, the writing that's selling today uh, primarily deals more with uh, the character and the character development and the character arc. It's great, because it's like, a, so you find it similar between uh, a writer from Romania, a writer from Canada, a writer from, you know, uh, Australia, that there is a common ground yeah, there are common grounds, absolutely. And I, I find it interesting because if you look at Australia, uh, New Zealand's work, they're trying to find, almost I feel like they're trying to find their identity. More in film. Like, I, I, I tend to watch film from all over the world. China is really getting very, very good. I watched them. I play back from Los Angeles. I watched two Chinese films that really were American films, Chinese style. And the one thing I noticed that the, the protagonist was a hardworking young man uh, and it was a romantic comedy, and it was very well done, and the girl was flaky, uh, drinking too much, falling down drunk, where in the United States or North America, you'd see that the guy is flaky and the girl is the solid one. So I found the reversal there, uh, cultural reversal, interesting. But it was beautifully done and uh, hit all the buttons emotionally, and I thought they did a fabulous job. In New Zealand, you know, I watched their work, they're almost trying to find their identity like the look, the style. Uh, you can almost see the overbearing of Australia falling on them in their film. Uh, and that's just my opinion. Uh, Australia, you know, the biggest films today are being produced in Australia because of the tax benefits and, uh, uh, and Fox Studios, I think, is the largest studio in the world. Uh, what do you think? located there. What do you think about China as a destination of film? I think, I think, uh, I, I, uh, as a destination for film, a huge market. Uh, I think the people love American films, but they're developing they're developing their own films. And I I have to say, the last two Chinese films I've seen, I wish I could remember the titles of them. I really thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, people should look into their contemporary films what they're doing. Uh, I'm not sure if the Chinese government is moving and changing the way the people are as they develop the middle class. Uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 but I think, I think they are a lot of gifted, talented people, uh, really, really good writers, good academics, uh, good technology. Uh, I find Korean films quirky. I mean, really sort of, you know, bizarrely funny. Uh, 
different. Uh, uh, for anyone that likes international films, check out a few of the Korean comedies. Uh, hmm. uh, you know, they're farcical. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, culture, they lost me, like uh, the one of the last films I saw, I was lost in some of the cultural nuances, but entertaining. Uh, you know, and so I enjoy all films. Uh, I enjoy seeing different techniques in films. Uh, and some of the classics from Claude and Lucius, uh, which in French was called Toot and V, and in English I think it was released, and it was Joseph Levine that released it, called and Now My Love, where you follow the suitcase uh, through different, a lost suitcase through different terminals, and the owner of the lost suitcase uh, ended up falling in love with a woman who found the suitcase, and it took you through the adventure, and they used that uh, as a theme, the suitcase became the theme of of moving the characters uh, through the story, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I'm always looking for old, new, and different techniques, just for the fun of it. I mean, it, it, just for the uh, the intellectual joy or the emotional joy. Of it. So, so I have a whole list of I have a whole list of recommendations for anyone young uh, of films they should see in my opinion. And, uh, like I find it fascinating the Rocky Horror Picture Show yep. is still being, is still being watched. And it's a huge rage right now. I mean, it was on the campuses in the eighties in America, uh, huge rage on Saturday night, you know, where all the students would go and, and at midnight and watch Rocky Horror Picture. Well, now in London and it's starting to become identified with, uh, uh, it's starting to really become identified with Halloween. <clears throat> Uh, but I think the camp musical, uh, I think there's something to that. I think that uh, there's probably a market here that Hollywood's missing uh, or the independents are missing, you know, uh, more musicals and more camp. Uh, not in the sense of the, not the way the Rocky Hour Picture Show is, but, you know, new and original ideas. I think there's a huge market that's, that's untapped. And I'm sort of surprised because I think the record companies and, or the music companies, uh, you know, could probably take advantage of it because I think there's a huge potential. And I mean, I think the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's really had tremendously long legs. It's almost like it's a wonderful life. Uh, Definitely. You know, for the holidays. And and, uh, and I think the Rocky Horror Picture Show for Halloween is now doing the same thing globally, which I, I find really fascinating. Well, which uh, which is great because it's like uh, it also opens up. It's something that globally people also all relate to, is why it's had legs. And the sad part is, is they are remaking it. They're, yeah. That, uh, no, don't tell me that. Yeah, <laughs> I, was nowhere, I was nowhere of that. Yeah, that that is too bad because I, I think that you know it, it's 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 kitschiness or it's you know it's uh, campness is really what what makes it. But anyway. Uh, do you have other questions for me? You know, yes. Do we have anyone calling in? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, and let me okay. remind the, the callers how they can do that, or the people who are listening, how they can do that. Uh, just go to, just call 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is area code 323-522-4601. A, a question I, I, I wanted to get to uh, is, you know, on the topic of of uh, remakes and reboots and and all of that, um, you know, I think some movies that were made in the past 
they would i think they were meant i think they were meant to be remade you know i think some things you can say that for but then there's things that they shouldn't touch you know i know that there was a you know they wanted to to remake a, a movie mm-hmm. like um a movie like um casablanca and i'm like mm-hmm. you know that's like blasphemous you know? mm-hmm. oh, i'm sorry i was uh we that's right. we have a caller um and you know stuff like that. So I wanted to get your take after this call uh, okay. that we're bringing in on your your feeling about about all that. Hold on a second. We have to call the caller okay. back. <laughs> okay. Hello? See now they're uh, now they're lighting up the phones to us. Oh. What's that? All right. Uh, call, hello. hello. <laughs> okay, uh, caller, please call back. Oh, here we go. There they, go. there they go. Caller area code nine one seven. What is your? Uh oh. Oh, we keep losing them. All right, we'll get them back. In. Go ahead. So, uh, what, what's your take on how? Wait. Let's try this. <laughs> uh, what's my take? Uh, my take is I think you're right. There's some that should have been remade though. Mike, one conversation I had years ago when right after Sidney Pollack made Sabrina, mm-hmm. he said his biggest mistake was. Uh, 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 doing a remake of Sabrina. Right. He said because even though he felt like he had a great cast, he said having Audrey Hepburn and William Holden and, uh, you know, the cast in the original one, it was difficult. And he said it, it was right for the period. And, uh, you know, uh, and he, in my opinion, Sidney uh, Pollock was a great, great director. You know what's so and, funny? Uh, that you bring up Sidney Pollack because I was just watching him the other night and uh, I was watching Eyes Wide Shut and uh, as an actor in that film mm-hmm. and that scene I don't know if you've seen that film but the scene that he has with uh, Tom uh, Tom Cruise about the close to the end of the film uh, you know it's a magnificent scene between the two of them uh, he, well he was he, he was he, you know what and you, there wasn't he was the greatest person. Uh, because I was, you know, just a young Turk in the business, and and you know, I would sit and listen and tell me stories about who became my partner, Phil Kellogg, you know, and and Sydney said, it, it would, you know, he told me to jog past Phil's house to see that David, Lee, you know, when David Lean was visiting Phil, just so he'd get invited up and listen to the stories of David. But Sydney uh, was trained in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, as an actor, and uh, I think his first real big hit was they shoot horses, don't they? But toward the end of his, uh, he was just a genuine, warm, affable, really a noble person. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if I should even say this. When his son died, uh, he called me, and his son died in a plane crash. And, he, and, he, and I said, Cindy, you know, how, how are you doing? And he said, you know, and he said, you know what? I taught my son how to fly. I'm feeling terrible and blaming myself. And uh, I didn't know what to say, but he was he was warm-hearted, uh, interceded when Pat Conroy fired Mike Ovitz. And at the time, CAA was uh, ruling everything. And, and uh, Mike Ovitz told Pat uh, and told me, he said, uh, do me a favor, you know, Pat, you know, go your own way. God bless you. Uh, but just keep me, my name out of the press. And little did we know that I knew that, uh, 
the, the day before Pat had said to the Atlanta Constitution, I think, uh, Michael, this was to entertainment what herpes is to sex, which uh, Mike, Mike called me up in a rage and said, you know, you, you'll never work again. Sidney Pollack went and intervened in my behalf and, uh, and smoothed things over. And that's really the kind of individual. He was always, he was always looking out for everyone and uh, a noble, noble soul. Terrific. And, you know, the last project that he worked on, it was a, it was a, a, a TV show called the number one ladies detective agency and uh during the, <laughs> the i love yeah. that show i i was so disappointed when they didn't bring it back but it was him as well as anthony Mengele, the great uh filmmaker mm-hmm. they both passed away during that production and it, it was yeah. it was quite sad and that was such a fantastic if anyone hasn't seen it definitely check that out it was excellent mm-hmm. excellent no sydney was really gifted and the world lost not only uh, a great filmmaker, a great actor, but a, more importantly, a great person. And uh, you know, and I look back now over my career, and what have been, what were some of the biggest events? And it, it didn't deal with, you know, uh, you know, it, the most, the biggest events were in my life were meeting these people, sitting down like Sydney and Phil Kellogg, and uh, you know, a lot of different stars. And sitting down and just listening to them chat and tell their stories, I learned a lot. And a lot of the people, I don't think, you know, even my own children, you know, they don't know. And they're like, you know, who's that? And, and who cares? And but, and it's probably because I, you know, uh, I've, I think now I'm in my well over thirty years in the industry. So it's, uh, but we've had some great, great talent uh, in Hollywood. And uh, and we've had great great writers. Yeah, and and this is the thing is that uh, as we continue, what are you hoping that uh, future uh, people will be dealing with in terms of writing? It's like, what kind of stories would you love to see out there? <laughs> okay, someone just texted me. It must be one of my clients. Mm-hmm. And said, I want to ask a question, but I was too shy to talk on the phone. Oh, oh no. Yeah. No, no, no. Hold Don't be shy. We're, we're... Hold on. Let me see. Uh, hold on. Bear with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Just... <laughs> my, my text has been okay. okay. We don't bite. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, we don't even have teeth. <laughs> but I was too shy to talk on my question. Is, why will a mixed genre, why will a mixed genre sell more than a single genre in the future? Uh... I don't think uh, the uh, mixed genre. I guess if you hit all the bases, action, action adventure, romance, comedy, thriller, uh, musical, probably <laughs> pretty well. But I think it'd be more of a marketing situation. I, I think that if the story is great, period, uh, I would focus more on the story than the genre. Uh, it, it's my opinion. That's what uh, they asked. So I would, I would, uh, I, I don't think that a, a mixed genre uh, would outsell a single genre. I think it has to do with the quality of the story, not the genre. Uh huh. No, I could, I could be completely wrong, but that's my own personal. I mean, I'm a story purist. I think a great story is like a cork in in a water bottle. It will rise to the top, and it doesn't really matter which way you turn the bottle. Ultimately, it rises to the top. You, you know, when I talk to uh, filmmakers, sometimes. 
they'll be talking about like producers they'll be talking about like a new project and they'll mm-hmm. tell you everything about the the project but the story they'll be like oh man we got this this certain person's gonna be in it the location is great i mean you know oh we got these people catering from and i'm like well what about the story oh yeah the stories are good you know it's like the story, the story is like you've never seen before they, they, they'll tell you everything <laughs> well, about the story that's, that's, that's where the, so much of it is bankable talent uh crossover uh, you know uh Everything because it it is a business, it, you know, and uh, being a business, it it has its uh, good points and its bad points, and uh, you know, uh, so there are economics involved. Uh, when I first came to the industry, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. When I first came to the industry, literally David Lean would have two years to prep the film. Uh, by the time. Uh, in the mid-90s, once Machusta, in early, you know, mid-90s, once the Japanese came in and they started looking at the manufacturing process, uh, the development times were cut down immensely. And I think it's really hurt because the focus in the development side uh, was primarily dealing with the story and how you portray that into, uh, into film. Uh, and now, I mean, I, I hear friends that are directing that they'll have six weeks to in development, eight weeks, and uh, and literally, uh, the studios would take much more time, and it was more of an art than a manufacturing process. And because of the nature of the business and having a global audience and the cost, I think what was it, the new Bond film, three hundred fifty million was the cost of the film. Oh, uh, you know, when you when you're making films like that, uh, the idea is if you have a big budget film, you have a global audience. Well, if you bring in $3 billion and you deduct the $350 million from the $3 billion, you still have netted, uh, you know, uh, what, $2.65 billion. So, or gross net at that. So they look at it that way and you can produce 100 small films and never make that. So that's more of the thinking and in Hollywood today. But the good news about that is that there's a, there's a lot of opportunity for original work. Uh, and... Uh, and I think you're seeing it happen. I, the, the transition that film's going through is exactly the same transition, in my opinion, that what publishing went through a decade ago. Because you have you know, YouTube channels popping up. You have really great uh, cameras are uh, less expensive. You can get a 4K camera for under five grand now. So you have cameras that are you know, above HD quality, uh, that are really theater quality for small amounts. So you, you know... It'll allow everyone, uh, really gifted artists, to show their wares. And, and I think that's what's happening. And a good story will always sell, ultimately. I know the marketing people yeah. will disagree. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the focus uh, should, you know, you can have the best actors and the best technicians, but if the story isn't there, you're going to have a lousy film. True, it all, it all comes together in terms of that, and it does really start with the story. Now, you can have a great story and end up still with a lousy film, but, uh, uh, you know, your odds are uh, increased of having a great film if you start off with a great story. 
most definitely. It's like, so what would you want to tell future uh, writers, uh, future people who come to you, screenplay writers, writer, uh, book uh, writer, uh, like authors? What would you want to tell them? Basically, great uh, great words of advice for them. Um, write every day. Write every day. Get into the habit of setting a time and disciplining uh, yourself to write every day. You know, uh, I have a lot of my writers uh, will set aside from 8 in the morning till 10 in the morning. Or uh, 8 in the evening, depends if you're a night owl or a morning person. But set, a, set aside a specific time, even if it's 20 minutes a day and write every day. And uh, also, uh, one uh, final question, though, before we do our final wrap-up. I know it's uh, it's like an hour goes by f- uh, far too quickly. I wanted to know, so what do you feel is the word bankable to you? What is the word? What does the word bankable mean? Bankable, yeah. What does it? Uh, what does it mean to you in, in terms of when you're looking at people's work? What makes you say that this is something that you're is going to automatically <laughs> click versus? <laughs> okay. For, okay. Uh, I hate the term bankable, but it's used, and it's used uh, to uh, to mean basically if you have an A-list writer, uh, when you walk into a publisher, they know that he's bankable. They, they can they can develop the metrics on what his next book, especially if it's a series from a series of uh, you know the same character, and it's from a, a book series. They have a really good idea what that book will do. So there's a bankability in that. Uh, Star is the same way for a future film. So if you put a bankable writer together with a bankable star uh, and a bankable director, you have, in Hollywood terms, a very strong. Uh, chance of success. I generally, that doesn't take any kind of, uh, uh, how do I say it, real, if you, if you can put those ingredients together, you're not going to have any problem get, having a film made. For uh, most of us who are mere mortals uh, in the industry, uh, if you have a great story, people will recognize it. They really will. Uh, that's why so many of my first-time writers have publishing deals today. Uh, if you have a great story, uh, you know you need to have a, a story that will appeal. And, and, and this is I'm saying this, and someone will point out the contradiction to that. But generally, that will have a global. You're better off if you have a story that has a global appeal. But a, a romantic comedy will have a global appeal. Uh, a romance, a drama. Uh, so you can use any genre. Uh, so it comes to, it comes down to really the story itself. And the only thing I can say, the difference between, uh, I feel like I'm a really good technician, and that's why I'm an editor. But there are people that I, that I have worked with over the years that have such a creative genius that they don't even know where it came from. And they'll take that, they'll take those, their saw and they'll spread it all over a page and go, gee whiz, how'd that happen? And mm-hmm. that's what I really that's what I really look for. And uh, if and usually it's people who live in the present, <laughs> they're spontaneous and and live in the moment. Very and cool. and no, but they might. And it's funny because I've noticed that with writers, they might not live in the present when they're when they're doing something else. 
but you know that they're in that moment when they're writing. And when I'm asking them questions about their writing, they're spontaneous. And and I'll say, gee, well, this is a great this is a great line. Where did it come from? And generally, I don't know. It just popped into my head, and but usually giggling or laughing. So that's another. That's more of a personality trait. So, and I guess you could call it like an athlete in in his zone. But that's that passion other people can feel, and I can feel it as an editor when I work for the writer. And uh, it's like so that uh, that sounds like a really really great thing. And also, Alan, how do people get in touch with you on social media uh, you, as well as also? <laughs> you can reach me through I'm on LinkedIn, Alan Brown Entertainment Consultant, Consultant, New York City, or they can they can email me at brown eight at me dot com, uh, or they can call me at nine one seven 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 six seven three two two. So. Uh, you know, and I have a website. It's uh, me-solutions.biz, which is me, M-E-S. So it's me-solutions, me, M-E-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S, me-solutions.biz. Uh-huh. And can so you have either way. Yeah. And uh, it's like, a, so would you want people to more email you or call you or which way <laughs> it, do you prefer your communications? It, it doesn't matter. Pony Express, uh, you know, if, if they need me, I'm here. And I'm always looking for great young talent. So, you know. Fantastic. And also, Kinte, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, you can what give does? me... Uh, you can get me at Kente F and of course you can go to IndieShowcase.org that's I-N-D-Y Showcase.org or you can go to IndieRadio.org to hear all of our different radio programs and me you can get me on LinkedIn Bizipedia Facebook um, Twitter uh, at Indie uh, at Movie Time Indie um Goodness, we can also do, uh, even though I don't know how to tweet, uh, it's like I promise I will eventually learn how to tweet and tweet back at you people um, who are uh, who are joining the Twitter site on there. And also, um, you can get me on the website, www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net. And uh, also, goodness, like, I, uh, like I've said a million times, it's like I, all over there on YouTube as well as uh, on several different sites, and if you can't find me, you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Alan, is there any parting words that you want to give to uh, our audience members? What's that? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Is there any uh, is there any uh, encouraging words you'd like to give to our audience members? Write every day. If you're a writer, write every day, and never give up. And it was amazing, amazing, amazing interview. And I look forward to actually us interviewing again further on to this subject. Okay, listen, thank you so much, guys. Have a joyous, happy evening. Thank you. And take care, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>